Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I am your host, John Eversall, and I am delighted to be joined today by poet and critic Michael Robbins, author of Alien and Pre- vs. Predator, Penguin Books, and the author of Equipment for Living, forthcoming from Simon & Schuster. Michael also writes regularly for the Chicago Tribune, Poetry Magazine, and many more places. Michael Robbins, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Uh, thank you for having me, John. You're very welcome. Um, I promised the people I would get this question out of the way. The Slayer the, T-shirt. The people. The people. I swear, no, people, I've been asking me. What is the origin story of the Slayer T-shirt, and was it just kind of a – was it just an easy decision to have that on your author uh, photo, or what's the story? Oh, uh, you know, it's not – I mean, it's not – Especially elaborate. I I just had a Slayer T-shirt. <laughs> I I wish it was like the, you know, an original T-shirt from the '80s. But in the '80s, I wasn't listening to Slayer, so I it's just one of those T-shirts from like relive your 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 youth, uh, rock tea company uh, that you can buy on the internet. There were like replicas of concert tees. That one I think is for was for a show in in. I don't know, 85 or something in L.A., just like a reprint of a poster they did. And, and uh, I don't know, Slayers, what can you say? I have, I mean, I have a lot of rock tees. Yeah. How, uh, how you, tees. Is it all right, you think, to – because I wrestle with this, and it seems like you have decided it's okay. Like, if I grew up, like, listening to bands and have a deep emotional connection to those bands, but I no longer own their T-shirts, it's it's perfectly <laughs> all right to go go buy them and wear them today? Well, I don't, you know, it's okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't think that that's not a taboo for you at all? I don't know. I'm only asking because I feel... I think like, it's better to wear, like, uh, the the knockoffs. Because just because I think that, you know, the cult of authenticity is, of all the places, it's uh, misguided. Yeah, popular music has to be the most, the most um, misguided place of all. I mean, it's just the authenticity has no place in, in popular music. The whole thing is prefabricated and manufactured. That's yeah, definitely. Well, I'm only asking because my friends would razz me. It's like I've, I was on the internet looking at t-shirts. I, I went through like a big industrial phase, and I was looking at like KMFDM t-shirts, and I was like, is this? Am I like? I don't know. It just felt like sadly nostalgic, but I mean, I like it and I wanted to wear it. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't question it, man. You're right. Well, there's just, you know, I don't understand how people keep their t-shirts from the eighties or whatever. Like I had, you know, I had like shirts that I bought at shows in the eighties, like the replacements and Sonic youth. And Mm -hmm. those shirts just wore out, you know, they get pit stains and they, and they shrink and they and or I lose them. I mean, like, how do people? What do they do? Like, wear the shirt once and then put it in a 
in a glass frame. <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't even know. Who fucking cares? It's a T-shirt. If you're if you're if you're relying on your T-shirt to make a you know a statement about you in the first place, then That's, then you're yeah. admitting to a certain level of, of of superficiality, which I which I probably cop to, you know. But but to to then like worry about the origin of your shirt to the extent that you're like concerned that you're not wearing an actual original concert tee. Yeah, but I'm also concerned about being at a certain age and reaching back in time to grab an artifact from my youth. Like it's still right. it still genuinely means something. So why like I guess it's like some narrative that you're supposed to grow up or something. So I can't walk around with a KMFDM t-shirt anymore, but I want to, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there are two aspects to that. One is that midlife which which I am now in having turned 40. Mhm. Uh, is, you know, partly about a kind of w- w- wistful, um, longing for youth, you know, and it's also partly about realizing that your youth was, was not nearly as, um, romantic as you remember. Right. And kind of wishing that you had, you were able to relive your youth with something like the acumen you've accumulated over the years. And it's also about, like, not letting yourself just get stuck in that phase. I know people who still listen to Game Theory all the fucking time, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, go back and listen to your Game Theory records. That's yeah. fine, but let's let's also – let's talk about Miley, you know? What, yeah. what, what about what about Miley? Yeah, what's up with that? Why was – do you think – why were people freaking out about that? I mean, was it really that surprising? This is one of my least favorite things about, about social media is that um, you get – in. in you get englobed in this uh, liberal echo chamber. I mean, I suppose people who are, there are other people who, I assume it's like this for like people on the right too, you know, like I don't have any friends on the right, which is perhaps, you know, completely normal for people on the left, but that's not something to brag about, but I don't have any friends on the right, but I assume it's the same for them where they, you know, like really smart people on the right get really upset that all of their friends are, are bitching about, Obamacare or something. Right. For me, it, it's, it's, it's the annoying tendency to, like, complain about identity politics on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's astounding to me that people are upset about Miley Cyrus. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and it kind of reminded me about the the Seamus Heaney kind of outpouring of we're going to miss you. Um, yeah. I felt really. Yeah. All my Facebook feed was full. I just got a couple of invitations to write about Seamus Heaney for various websites. And I just don't, it, it was sort of like, I mean, I posted something too on Facebook cause yeah. you know, whatever. And I said, but yeah, but yeah, you can kind of predict what's going to grab people's attention and it's not, you know, it's not the fact. I mean, we've got, you know, the president just yesterday uh, advanced a new reason for bombing Syria, which is that American credibility is at stake. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> the president, whom all my friends voted for, is 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 actually openly saying that we need to go kill people because American credibility is at stake. Yeah. And that elicits uh, a fraction of the comment that, like, a pop star shaking her ass on TV elicits. Yeah, it, that is. It's astounding to me, you know. And it's all about, oh, you know, she's 
She's appropriating black culture or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Meanwhile, chemical weapons are falling on children. I would like to point out that that rock and roll has been appropriating black culture since the 1950s. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that that's how we get a lot of great music. Yeah. But also, I don't even think that's what she's doing. I mean, it's just it's just when I see these posts on Facebook, I, it just makes me want to. Well, it, it makes me want to shut down my Facebook account. But of course. <laughs> exactly. Hey, real quick, let's jump in uh, without any warning. Slayer. Let me just say the Slayer is a great band, and I don't see why I, I shouldn't wear one of their T-shirts. Yeah. Do you? And uh, I mentioned I have a poem in my new book where I. Uh, it, which is about dead rock stars, and I was sad that I got to include Jeff Hanneman in there. I know. I remember when that happened, yeah. Did you uh, – I went through a huge kind of like – I guess it's just considered metal now, but at the time it was like straight up to speed metal, you know, where yeah. uh, I remember just kind of being totally immersed in the Megadeth and Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer, and just those were the, like those titans, you know. Uh, right. And, and they just keep producing too. It's amazing. But I never, I can't stand Megadeth or Anthrax, but but Slayer and Metallica are, are undeniable. Yeah, I well, can't I, deal with dude's voice in Megadeth. Like it's uh, a little got to be an acquired taste or something. It is, yeah, because it, yeah, I know I can't even describe it, but I know exactly what's bugging you about it. And the only thing I don't, the Anthrax thing, I think when I was younger. Their kind of goofiness like appealed to me, like they made me feel less guilty about listening to them for some reason. <laughs> but I can see where I don't know. In retrospect, when I go look at, I looked at like some old Anthrax, and it, it didn't have the same charm. But I really did like them back in the day, and I and I loved the way Anthrax was written out just visually. I was just taken with that. Yeah. Um, anyway, well, for years, on. the only thing I knew about Anthrax was. Because I was heavy into Public Enemy, and they did that embarrassing single with Public Enemy. Oh yeah, that was horrible. Yeah. All right. So anyway, we'll move on. What? What's your? What? Go ahead. <laughs> Are you ready? I've had a great deal of coffee, and and I just had a cigarette because I'm really bad extempore, so I wanted to eat myself chemically as much as possible. Oh no! I yeah, I totally understand. I quit. I quit smoking for since last December. It's it's still holding up, but I never know okay. when it's going to strike again. I really don't. I've been like kind of craving it lately, but the coffee—that's several cups a day, no doubt about it. Hey, you got your, hey, you got it. You, it's so funny because as I was looking at all your interviews and stuff, I realized now that I'm interviewing you, and you said your new book's coming out soon of poetry. Like how fucking late to the game I am on Michael Robbins, and it was kind of like a—it felt kind of good that like it was after like you know I'm I feel like I'm coming out near the end so i wanted to ask you because i looked at all your uh, past interviews and you know you've been talking about alien versus predator a lot you know what i mean and kind of address and kind of addressing the issues and i thought that dude must be so tired of this kind of like just talking about it so i was wondering at least we won't go heavy into it we will read a couple of poems out of it but you know how do you are you at this point of like really feeling detached from that work and like a chance to even look back at it now, now that you have this kind of new manuscript uh, in the works? Um, or is it kind, of, kind of seamless? No, I mean, I'm kind of uh, burnt out on talking about it, and part of that is just because I I was just, you know, I had to go find my a copy of my book in my in, in my 
yeah. uh, piles just for this interview because I'm try- I don't want to look at it while I'm working on the new manuscript. Right. Um, and it's partly just that I'm embarrassed about a lot of the stuff that I said about it in interviews because people ask you questions about your work and they don't, it's not as if you actually have uh, a critical sense of your own work. You know, you're not, or if you do, it's completely um, post hoc. And right. there's a there's a way in which a lot of the stuff I said about the book in various interviews, which thankfully are ephemeral, you know, like no one's going to go back and unless, like you, they, they're doing it for another interview. Right. But a lot of the shit I said about it is just, just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And I think that it's just because someone asks me a question, I just make something up. You know? Yeah. No, I think, I think it's a weird position to be put in because, I mean, I have no idea, like, what it feels like to be Michael Robbins at the time of composition and editing, but, I mean, it's kind of like a mysterious thing going on. Uh, yeah. It's not I can like, talk about other people's work, you know, just fine, and I do all the time. But exactly. talking about your own work is weird because you don't have the kind of purchase on it that you do. Uh, I mean, I'm not like an anti-intentionalist by any means, but I'm also enough of a Freudian to believe that we don't understand our own intentions very well. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you, you, uh, because I follow you on Twitter, uh, you, you, (laughs) it's not a big deal, I swear. I I just wanted to ask. I follow you too, I think. You do. And I wanted to ask you, one, one tweet you had like this Heidegger freak out moment. And and then I read somewhere that you were reading Heidegger, and I've been like, I can only almost digest that dude by like through secondary source material, because uh, I just get kind of lost in it. But I wanted to get your opinion because I've been kind of like not being able to pin this down. Just real quick, like what is going on with Dizine? What like is, tell me if my understanding it. Dizine. Dizine. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I don't ever know how to pronounce anything. So. Uh, okay. Is it essentially are we are we a individual design and that our actions which are intentional and and goal and outcome oriented and everybody engaged in like you know I pick up the hammer because I want to nail that nail you know mm-hmm. it's all this everyday stuff makes up this collective kind of design or am I like can I call an individual person Dazai? What do you think? What's your take on that? This interview is not going in the direction I anticipated at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's going to no, go well. No, that's fine. Uh, my sense of it is that, that, that each of us is an individual Dazai, but it's misleading to say so because it's not. Dazai is about a kind of collective human way of being. Right. Dazai designates being in the world as a um, as a uh, public and shareable experience. Right, there's a social so, you know, to it. There's a sense in which Dasein does mean human being, but it's but it's you have to like also give it that double entendre where it's the human way of being. Right. Um, it's not. I mean, he's. It's very much. It's precisely not an individualist right. philosophy. I mean, when you say that an individual is a Dasein, you're extracting. Uh, you're, you're extrapolating from his or her particular uh, biography. You know? Right. It, it, you are you are an individual design insofar as you participate in design. Exactly. And it's precisely that shared sense of a background of an everydayness that makes us, you know, what we are. 
So, yeah. but yeah, I, if you haven't read it, um, John, uh, not John, uh, what's his name? Hubert Dreyfus has a great, just perfectly clear exposition of uh, being in time, the first division at least, which yeah. I read, you know, uh, when I was going through division one of being in time. And it's just, it's just, you know, I know people who think it's a little too analytic, um, a little too freighted yeah. toward that end of the spectrum, but I don't, I think it's just unbeatable as a way of understanding what's at stake for Heidegger. Yeah. Can you hear my cat meowing? She's, what is your cat's name again? Perdita. Hi, Perdita. Yes, you are. How old is your cat? She's nine, and she'll be ten in January, probably. I mean, that's when I observe her birthday. We don't know when she was born. Yeah. But she is about about almost ten. Has she had any major health events? Yeah, she has problems with her digestion. I guess it happens to cats as they get older, some cats where they have trouble moving things through their digestive system. And yeah. so she's on some uh, medication and stool softener. And it's really, um, she's had to have a, a couple enemas, but she's been fine for the last year uh, with the medication. Oh, that's good. But, you know, beautiful, really, really delightful dinner conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I, I could tell some stories. So, yeah, we just recently uh, lost, like, two cats within, like, a month oh, or two of each other. Yeah, the one cat got out a window uh, and oh, was a total scaredy cat, like total house cat. And uh, But it got out, and months went by. I swear to God, like two or three months, and then a neighbor has a shed and was like, oh, I keep seeing this orange tabby like around my shed. I'm like, what? And, uh, and I went oh. out, and I sat a chair next to that shed and had a bunch of reading material and finally coaxed the kitty out. But... Uh, his name was Marquez, and he was just so far beat up. I think. Oh he had, God. But anyway, yeah. But he's okay. No, he's gone. He died. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. He's not. <laughs> That's I, a I, really depressing story, John. <laughs> no, I, it, it was really sad because he was old. But anyway, and then our, and then the next cat went, and it's a. Uh, I don't know, man. It was pretty horrible. So I'm glad your cat's doing well. Hey, I want yeah, to. I, I can't even think about it. I'm gonna be. I, I don't even think about it. It's like it's like thinking about my own death. You just like put it out of your mind. Well, it was really messed up because with the second cat, whose name was Daza, uh, we took her to the vet, and because she was suffering so bad, we decided to go ahead and put her down. And I like crouched down and got eye contact with her. Oh man, <laughs> I, I, I can't even listen to this story. <laughs> but and that was just a trippy, horrible moment. And, oh, but, it, but it was so like real, you know, it was just like capital R real. It was horrible. All right, I'll I'll segue somewhere else into uh, lush uh, lust for life. Uh, are you ready to read this poem? <laughs> well, not now. I'm <laughs> <laughs> about to cry. It's a All perfect right, segue. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me find it. Let me find it. It's Page four, time. man. I know. Okay. Ow. My cat was just attacking me and she scratched me. All right. Lust for life. The elephants ate each other. Then they dreamed of eating elephants till their captors came to feed them. Then they died. My meth lab tends to explode. I move to a new one like a hermit crab. I give the gift of gab. The truth gets me hard. Song selection is key. 
the idiot Swedes do a number on me. They invent refrigeration and sleep in ships. I'm tired of being compared to Britney Spears. She's so pretty, uncovered in petroglyphs. That sorcerer bewitched my penis. I'm speed and space and Aztec princess. The truth makes me hurl. The truth's a mistake. John Milton jumps out of my birthday cake. The psyched Mohican oils the beaver. Fruit stripe gum soon loses flavor. Everything's flammable. Everything's flash. Posted like doctors and doctors like cash. Thanks, man. That was great. The John Milton jumps out of my birthday cake was, like, so terrifying and sad to me. <laughs> it's a true story. Are you, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> it used to be someone besides John Milton, actually, when I in my first draft. I don't remember who. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, John Milton is a better choice. It is sad. It's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's a kind of poignant moment, I think. Yeah, well, it reminds me. I don't know if it was Virginia Woolf or somebody was taking, taking John Milton to task about his relationship, like with women or how you know that whole kind of gender thing. And when you had him jump out of a birthday cake, I think that's a role typically assigned to women. Although I don't know, I've never, I don't know the birthday cake jumping out culture, but it made me think of that. But I wanted to, you know, when I read your work, it made me uh, think of a moment at uh, James Tate reading, and I don't think your work resembles his at all, except for maybe in one regard. And he always found it, he always found it strange that people like really laughed at his work, you know? Really? Like, <laughs> I thought like, that was the whole thing. Like, what else is <laughs> Well, no, I saw, well. I shouldn't say that. But I mean, he's funny. That's his deal. <laughs> I know, but according to him, he like kind of like shunned that response and said, like these are really actually terrifyingly sad poems and kind of dark. Although I mean, some of the things he writes, I mean, if you're not laughing, like then you're, I don't know, you're not alive. But do you think, like, you know, and you well, there's about, nothing wrong with laughing at what's dark. I mean, that's the you know what's dark is funny, or, yeah. or that, 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 that's how you get through what's dark, right? Yeah, that's true. I don't know that that's actually very banal, but well, no, <laughs> could be true. I think it might be true. Um, but I think the point that I'm kind of driving at was that his his the readers responding and maybe it's being totally like an ironic maniac about it, but you know that the audience was responding to his work in ways that he didn't necessarily like. I don't know agree with or like or the oh sure or like hey you should be looking at this other side and I you know you've said in the past I think like I wire you know I understand why readers are like you know, totally annotating my work and like, wow, he's appropriating all these different things into a, a cool mashup. But I think you also point out that that the extremity of that presentation is usually like serving as this tremendous shield for something much more grave. Uh, is that right. how you kind of see it? Yeah, I mean, that's my sense of it. I mean, I've talked about this before and I, I mean, I'm not going to police what readers think of my work because, yeah. you know, I can't and I wouldn't want to. But I do think there's a superficial reading of it, which is just like, oh, look, you know, he's, oh, it's it's like John Milton and Britney Spears in the same poem. Like, mm -hmm. that's fucking innovative, you know? Yeah. No, I, I do see it as a kind of all of that relentless culture grabbing as a defense mechanism in some respect. But, you know, I wouldn't, I don't want to get too far into that because yeah. people... You, you, 
one of the wonderful things about having um, any kind of readership is that you're surprised and, and moved by the range of responses that you find. And you, it, it, it's a, it's still something, it's a humbling thing, you know. Pedita, I'm on the phone. Yeah, <laughs> it's a humbling thing. Oh, she wants food. Okay. No, you've got food. Do you feed her dry food or wet food? Uh, I feed her dry food because she's also on this special prescription food that is supposed to be good for intestinal health. Yeah. Um, sensitive system. But it's a really surprising and moving thing that, that A, you have anybody who cares about your work at all, and that, B, it becomes theirs. You know, it's not something, it's not, it's, you know, it's like yeah. Pound said, that literature becomes public property. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's amazing. It's like these people are encountering this thing out in the world that isn't mine anymore, and I... You know, I, I honor that. I'm, I feel amazingly grateful for that. Yeah, I was I was going to say, uh, you know, you. it's weird to call it a persona because I think it's utterly genuine, but you give off at least publicly these two different vibes, and I'm glad you brought up humbling, is that you mm. kind of contain this contradiction of being offensive at times, but it's sometimes being tremendously humble. And, like, mm-hmm. I re, I've read in interviews where you'll be like, Somebody will ask you a question and you'll just kind of defer to like, I really can't speak to that. You know, you don't like it I mean, as much as maybe you thought you do, but you don't really like sound like you're inventing things just to invent things. And I thought that's interesting, you know, that it's actually like to be offensive usually means uh, in many ways kind of self-deprecating that you're talking about some real shit. And that being offensive is kind of a form of humility. I mean, it's great if you're just being straight up a jerk to somebody, but usually offensive comes across as like, I am showing you something, you know, that, you know, I'm willing to kind of sacrifice and show you. I don't know. This kind of like, I don't know, this play between kind of uh, you being a self-described asshole and, and kind of also humble as well. And I'm wondering, you know, where do you think that comes from? Is that like, I wanted to kind of back up a little and be like, yeah, you know, like, well, I mean, I know what you're talking about. It's like a natural um, position and it's probably unfair to ask you like, Hey, can you pinpoint that trauma in your life that like really chilled you out? But, uh, right. I don't know. Can you speak to it at all? Well, I just think, you know, I mean, I, it's a weird question. It's no, it's, but it's a good question. Um, but I would, I would say, you know, my, my initial, my immediate sort of gut reaction is just that all that, that what you're saying is that I'm a human, that I'm a person, I'm a human being right? and that I have contradictory and, and, and complex uh, um, responses to things. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm humble and I'm arrogant and I'm a dick and I'm a, you know, and I'm kind and I'm smart and I'm stupid. And so is everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think th- it's just that the, what, what, all the the reason it might come up in my case is that I can be very vitriolic at times, right? And um, you know that's just a, a matter of of um, intellectual temperament. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not going exactly. around in the street like calling people fat or something. I'm just, right. you know, it's always about intellectual disagreement. Definitely. And when I'm actually talking to somebody. Uh, in person, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a jerk. Right, I think you're <laughs> At right. Least I don't think I am. <laughs> no, um, I think it's clear that you're, uh, you're not. Um, 
Yeah, that's what. Hey, one time I meant. I just have this like kind of random list of things I wanted to ask you, so I'm gonna like be bouncing all around. Uh, that's fine. One time you, I just watched a video of a bunch of on YouTube of all the fires out west, and I remember you uh-huh. mentioning, uh, "Hey, m- say a prayer for my dad in Arizona." Is that where he lives? Yeah, my dad lives in uh, Wallapai, Wallapai, Wallapai Mountains uh, uh-huh. outside Kingman. Um, although he's recently, he's, he's going to retire soon and they're thinking about moving, but yeah, they had to evacuate. Oh my God. Uh, for a week, maybe a little over a week. I'm not sure. And yeah, they were, the, the fire was, uh, you know, just a couple miles away and they, and they, you know, all the, the people came through with their bullhorns and they were like, you need to get the fuck out because you're the, this shit is real. And you know, they, bundled the cat into the carrier and uh, didn't have a chance to grab much else and went and got a motel room and uh, crazy. it was, it was scary shit. You know, I was, I was scared every day. And then, you know, he gave me a call and he's like, well, we just moved back in. Somehow yeah. the fire got within about a mile. You could see the fire line and the line of the, the red retardant that the people yeah. had dropped. And then, and then the winds changed. That's and it ended crazy. up taking out like, you, you know, the, that, that particular fire in that area took out hundreds of homes, but somehow my dad's was spared. And, yeah. you know, like I told him, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that all those homes burned down, but if, but if someone's home had to remain standing, I'm glad it was yours. Yeah. That stuff so, is so sketchy too, because you're like, you say it's a mile away and you're like, what? That's long. That's far, you know, not in like fire miles, you know? No, that that's a huge thing. I mean, I have friends, I grew up in Colorado and you know this isn't something you would see. Uh, there were fires in Colorado when I was growing up, but yeah. but now you see it every single year in all of these places. And it's just uh, my friends in Colorado are just like, well, the sky is on fire today. Uh, oh my god, I can't imagine. You know, there's like ashes raining down on my house. <laughs> that was so messed up. Um, yeah. It's funny you said you grew up in Colorado. The bio on your book, anyway, says I guess born in Kansas. Is that true? Yeah, I was born in Kansas. And then how long were you there? Uh, my parents divorced when I was five, and we moved. Uh, my dad took me and my sister to Colorado. Yeah. But um, I was I was in and out of Kansas all through until about my mid twenties because uh, my yeah. grandparents still lived there. So yeah, I spent a hell of a lot. Of time. I spent the night in Manhattan, Kansas, one time with <laughs> this girl named Angie, Angie McDevitt. She's married now. God, uh-huh. She was gorgeous. Yeah. And uh, we got very drunk. This was long before I quit drinking. Yeah. And I woke up and I just I remember like going outside and looking around, and thinking, Jesus, this is it. This is the sticks, man. <laughs> and yet, there's you know Manhattan's relatively large for Kansas because it's got the university there. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, you said you stopped drinking. Uh, it reminded yeah. me of that review. I think, uh, what was it, Gregory Orr? Did you just review? No, Gary Soto. Yeah, the guy who was like, yeah, us poets all drink. And you, I was so stoked that you pointed out, like, so much for my friends in AA, you know? <laughs> I know. I have so many poets. Every year at AWP, which I, I try not to go to, but sometimes I have an interview or something, so I have to go. Yeah. There, there's a AWPAA, you know. Um, no way, really. AWPers. Yeah, and you're like kind of on a private list. Obviously, it's anonymous, but no kidding. You can go and see just how many poets don't drink, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not much of a meeting person. I'm not a friend of Bill's or anything, but yeah. I, but I respect that. And I I went actually with a, a a poet whom I obviously can't name, 
yeah. uh, to an AA meeting in New York uh, maybe a year and a half ago. And, you know, I don't go to meetings, but but it, you know, it came whatever up. works. Whatever yeah. works. But there was that point in your life where you're like, I, ha- I, I am just not wired for this. I can't do it. Like, I can't predict what will happen after that first drink. Right. Well, it's been... I mean, it's been set, it's going to be going on 17 years now. Are you serious? That's so, awesome. So it's been a long time, but but yeah, it was in my early 20s that I realized, maybe my mid 20s, that I realized. Uh, I guess it couldn't be my mid 20s. Yeah. Maybe it hasn't been 17. Maybe it's been 15. I don't know. I'll have to look. But the point is, some people can drink, and some people just. Yeah, can't stop drinking. So that is. was my problem. But you know, that was a long time ago, and I'm really grateful that I'm. You know, I don't even. I don't even. I, I, sometimes I have beer in the fridge for my friends. You know, exactly. I don't even think about it anymore. No, I don't. I don't drink as well, and it hasn't been uh, <laughs> quite as long uh, uh, as you. But uh, yeah, I've hit the room. Well, you're like, younger than I am. I assume. I don't know. How old are you? I think. Um, 40. <laughs> Just 40? Or were you going somewhere else with that? Well, I could be 41. Who really, you know... It I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I just turned 39. What year did you graduate from high school? Oh, okay. Uh, high school was 91. Oh, okay. So I graduated in 93. Yeah. Okay. It's weird because when I thought about your age, and now that I know you graduated in 91... You know, I hear these references to music you were listening to, like, right. like the Eagles and Patti Smith, and like in high school, I was utterly immersed in like, I was like, whether it was like kind of sub pop and industrial music, you know. Uh, but you oh, were, yeah, in high school, I was all I wasn't really. Yeah, I mean, well, in high school, I did two things. I I went back into the seventies and I was listening to the early Talking Heads and yeah, the Clash. Everybody around CBGBs, you know. Yeah. And um, not that the Clash were there, but that whole okay. punk scene and post punk. But I was also listening to. It, it, I don't know. In the in the in high school, it was embarrassing because I was I was. Also into what was then called college rock, the yeah. Pixies and Camper Van Beethoven and totally. the replacements and REM, <laughs> you know. Of course, yeah. I mean, that's a, of course, you know, that's what you listen to then. Yeah. Uh, and I would make fun of my of the people, you know, in my school who listened to U2 and the Grateful Dead. Yeah. But, you know, these days I'm much more likely to, to want to hear a U2 song than a fucking Camper Van Beethoven song. I can't. <laughs> You're not taking the skinheads bowling? <laughs> That's like the only Dude. song I know by them. <laughs> but uh, I don't listen to much from that I used to listen to anymore. Not because I don't really like it, although Camper Van Beethoven, yeah. But yeah. just because you know, how many times can you listen to Graham Parker or Elvis Costello or something? I mean, yeah. you gotta, you know, I, I I know every note on this year's model. Uh, yeah. It's not there's nothing there for me. I sucked all the juice out of it. Yeah, I recently put on I put Pandora on my phone and. And just kicked like some '90s channel, and like it was like pretty hard to listen to, you know, like Stone Temple yeah. Pilots. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Alice in Chains. I mean, I like all of them, but it just didn't have the same resonance anymore, you know. Hey, uh, I missed all that shit. The '90s were, yeah, the '90s were problematic for me musically. I didn't know what to listen to. I think I was I into think, right, Tricky yeah. and DJ Shadow. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was kind of a but weird. There's a bunch of shit that I listened to then that I just can't listen to anymore, like Corner Shop and <laughs> fucking Moby. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what? 
<laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you'll watch Tango. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it was such a weird moment in history too. It was that kind of like, like Clinton in the White House, kind of like no, like. I don't know. There was just like, you know, I heard a joke by uh, somebody who said growing up in the 90s was like horrible because it was uh, it was after uh, like the AIDS scare, but it was before the Internet. And, uh, yeah, you know, that it was just a weird in between time, you know. But yeah, I guess it was a lost decade for me. It really was. Yeah, definitely. Hey, you ready to read another poem? Oh, I suppose Turn to Does page. anyone really want to hear it? Thank question. I seriously, after like reading all your interviews, I'm like, maybe we shouldn't even talk about the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll read like, something. Like, I'm sitting there like tweeting stuff, like quotes out of stuff out of the book. I'm like, what am I? People already like, they're probably like, Jonathan, dude, we we're we're done, man. <laughs> like, like we know his work, we know Michael Robbins, but. uh but I don't care, man. You're probably overestimating my popularity a little bit. Oh, maybe. Okay. I don't know. But uh, tw- page 25, uh, Affect Theory. <laughs> I like it when you give me the page numbers because I can't remember what or anything. Yeah, well, I, I wrote them down last minute because of this very reason. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Affect Theory. Oh, this poem, right, right. Okay. Affect Theory. Every last one of my 38 years would fit inside Jeffrey Dahmer's freezer. 38 clans, 38 Care Bears, and all I got's this lousy T-shirt. Sometimes I sag. That's what antlers are for. You put them in milk, the milk of a stag. If I had a shoe, I'd bang it on the table. When I get a shovel, I'll bury you. You quit smoking. You recycle. These two trochies, Robbins, Michael, are pronounced with equipoise. I love this war, girls versus boys. I finally passed the Turing test. Everything I look upon breaks into blossom, I guess. Life is but the interpretation of a dream. Gently, gently down the drain. <laughs> All right, man, that is so ruthless. That's crazy. Care Bears, man. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, the trochies are crazy too. It's a, it's an awesome poem. But the ending, it kind of like you're like kind of begrudgingly like accepting your humanity. You know, like yeah, like sh- like God, like I guess I am fucking part of this thing called humanity. But you seem to have like an, at least philosophically, kind of just a general like uh, a pessimism. You know, that basically like. You know, uh, all knowledge is essentially like kind of human, and there's no like ultimate source of knowledge, and that right. we're just like all made up of all these errors, like dreams, like you say in the second to last line. <laughs> you know that is that fair to say that? And I, when I say pessimistic, you know, it's not, you know, that you're like, you know, no, I, have a, I have a, um, I'm depressed. Button, every day. I have a button on my messenger bag that just says pessimism. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Epistemological, right? <laughs> you know, like, right? Yeah, and and I think. Well, I mean, what else? You know, I mean, hello. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, that goes back to your kind of humility that I think is so refreshing around now. And I think I read, oh, this is the believer. And I mean, I was just like whoring out your interviews, but like you, this yeah, whole. I feel for you there. <laughs> no, no, it was good. Immersed themselves in my interviews. No, it was really great to see like how different people wanted to pick your brain, and I thought it was interesting that. 
kind of religion came up because the premise of, say, like a Christian point of view is that, hey, there's this God and there's a loving God and this God is working through human history, presumably on a course towards things getting better, right? So, but that seems slightly a bit optimistic. And Well, I don't know. I mean, I that's something that I would actually... You kind of kind of sympathetic with. to? Well, I would just disagree with that interpretation of, of Christianity. Okay. I consider myself a kind of Christian. Yeah. And I've been reading a lot of Christian theology over the last few years. Yeah. And in fact, I was just reading today Simone Weil's um, Gravity and Grace. And, you know, you can't really call her a Christian, but she's certainly immersed in Christianity. Yeah. And her sense is basically that God is, you know, active and 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 grace is real, but he's just kind of stepped back from the whole scene. Right. He's not like this. Uh, There's oh. a kind of kind of Gnostic uh, quality to her thought that I can sympathize with. Yeah. And I also think that Christianity doesn't believe, you know, doesn't have to involve any particular adherence to particular creeds, which sets me apart from a great many Christians, maybe yeah. all of them. But, you know, I mean, the Christian idea of salvation and redemption are things that are accomplished in this life. You know, That's they're, right, yeah. They're, and I don't, I don't think you have to necessarily uh, believe that history has a happy ending in order to believe that something like grace is possible. Yeah, I think but, you know, that's just because I'm I'm pessimistic, you know. No, you need a counter you need a countermeasure. That's true, yeah. But I mean that wasn't necessarily my interpretation, but though how I see it interpreted, I think I'm I'm kind of sympathetic to what you're saying. It's like God's and I think Terry Eagleton said this in these lectures I listened to recently, that God's not this like micromanaging CEO, you know? Like God's well, not yeah, gonna, I mean, God's not gonna find you a great parking spot, you know. But, <laughs> Yeah, God's not going to win your football game for you. <laughs> exactly, but it, that is, and and really, like it's so preposterous to even conceive of what that God even means, you know. But right. but that is right. something. Something's going on, and there's an intrinsic mystery to. I don't know if you know. I guess you can go back to you know the something rather than nothing argument. I guess it all kind of sort mm-hmm. of leads back there, but. And I think it was so great. You had a phrase in one of your reviews that we're here for like a hand clap worth of time, you know? Yeah. And I was like, and it kind of reminds me of maybe like a, a, a pragmatism of James, you know, of just like, look, if the best way I can freaking flourish uh, during my little sliver of time here involves like, I don't know, ritual and, and this thing called God, like, leave me alone, you know? Like, <laughs> like I don't know. I just... Like, yeah, there's something to that. There's something to the idea that also that belief is not the most essential element in in, in religiosity or precisely. in call it, you know, I mean, I don't know what I believe half the time. That doesn't mean that I, that I'm not religious. Right. Um, it's a I mean, doubt is an integral part of faith. You know, it's only fundamentalists and atheists who believe that it's not. No, that's <laughs> precisely. with the territory. <laughs> Doesn't the polarization of that conversation drive you a bit crazy? I swear to I'm like, the atheists think everyone's like a fundamentalist, you know? And the fundamentalists well, yeah. think everyone... You know, well, there are, there, are, there are intellectually respectable atheists, but oh, they're, no doubt about they're it, not but... the ones who dominate the conversation. 
Right, and I think well, like the conversation is dominated by people who who believe that pointing at science constitutes an argument. <laughs> exactly. So I remember uh, uh, kind of reading your thoughts on that. I was like, thank you. It's like because you know that your faith can be a basic disposition towards the world, you know, and that you're not yeah. you're not some like crazy zealot trying to convert people or you know what I mean. It's just kind of like I think it goes back to that humility aspect like look I you know like I only have like so many things I can kind of apprehend knowledge in this world and it's pretty freaking limited in my view and so I'm just doing the best I can and and kind of embracing the mystery of that limitation um right one of the benefits of reading Heidegger for me and you know Heidegger's not his is not a therapeutic philosophy right he's not interested in saving individuals you know but it is true that that his that his way of understanding our embeddedness in the world mm-hmm. is something that provides you with an insight that matters to me, which is that this mystery of being, which can really freak me out and make me existentially, <laughs> you know, like naked. Yeah. And I can actually see how people could could become quite frightened just in the face of, of being. Definitely. Because what the hell? It doesn't make any sense that any of this is here in the first place. But one thing Heidegger allows you to think is, well, this is the way it appears to the particular animal that you are. Yeah, exactly. You know, presumably there is a perspective, whether or not anyone occupies that perspective, from which not that the universe makes sense, but that the question dissolves. You know, right. the, the, it's just that we are this particular animal with our particular limitations that <laughs> things seem to us utterly fucking mysterious right. you know Chomsky likes to use the example of of uh, uh, you know Chomsky likes to point out that, that not Chomsky of course is utterly unsympathetic to any religious um, point of view right. but, he, but he likes to point out that we are animals and there's no particular reason to believe that the human brain has evolved in such a way that it is capable of understanding the structure of the universe and right. he compares he compares it to uh, the question of of a rat and how it it's a rat is not going to understand calculus no matter what you can try to teach it for a hundred well it would die for its whole life yeah and it's never going to be able to even take a step toward understanding the calculus the difference is that the rat doesn't fucking care and it <laughs> doesn't understand that there is a calculus to understand right whereas we're like the rat sitting around going God if I could only understand calculus right you know yeah. but the, but, our, but maybe our brains don't work that way. You yeah, know? they don't. They don't see and, you. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, this example I hear all the time is like, oh, that acorn, you know, knows exactly what to do without thinking about it. Why, <laughs> you know, like, why are humans, right. like, so tangled up? And maybe that's just an evolutionary, like, offshoot of, like, well, that's where we're at right now. You know, we're trying to figure it out. We can't, you know. Uh, this is another great thing about Heidegger is that he, his was a very anti-contemplative tradition you know yeah. he's like you know contemplation actually indicates that something has gone wrong <laughs> right <laughs> that is what and then it's like i'll turn to poetry <laughs> right that is amazing um let's uh let's go ahead and jump into another poem uh page 39 anyone right, i have to go relocate my book where did i put it down? come on I'm walking man. around the apartment <laughs> what kind of phone are you on are you on a landline it's an iphone yeah I'm totally normal in that in most respects. It sounds pretty good. 39. Yep. 
And does that title... Anyone I want to. Let me just ask you real quick, Michael. Does that title have anything to do with Journey or Roy Orbison? <laughs> no, I'll tell you the title. It's a quotation from Little Big. Okay. Where, um, by John Crowley, which is the greatest fantasy novel written... Well, I can't say that, but it's, it's my favorite fantasy novel, and it's one of the best fantasy novels. And he's trying to... Um, uh, it's been 10 years since I read it last, so I can't remember exactly what, what's going on. But the idea is that a, a fairy, you know, godmother might offer you wishes, and mm-hmm. I think it might be a fish in this instance. And the disastrous decision that this guy makes is to wish for any girl he wants, anyone mm-hmm. he wants. Yeah. And the poem is a sort of um, sort of wistful way of thinking about you know, unrequited love and and uh, uh, wistful, wistful. By wistful, I mean like um, utterly depraved. So. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah, it's just a poem about sexual desire and how you know it's it's just not something that that works out all that well most yeah. of the time. <laughs> I mean, it gets it gets sublimated, you know, or, or you put it into something else. Uh, how often do any of us have our sexual desires just like fulfilled? You know, no, it's sir. very interesting. <laughs> it's fascinating, and I, I can't wait to really talk to you about it at length. I don't know if I want to talk about I'm it. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I don't want to go there. All right, go ahead and read All the right. poem. I got a bad desire. I have eyes in the sack of my dead. Your name is writ in vitreous humor in the John at the Ramada where it's always Ramadan. The Mamasans get their famine on. It's dirty because it hasn't bathed. You clean it like this. You circle your star-hitched Aegon. There are more things in heaven and earth than you're wearing in my philosophy. You're not the boss of me, but somehow you give me a raise. It's my mouth's birthday, and I'm coming around to its point of view. Its love for you skeeps out the girls in H&M, those switchblades made of human skin. I wash it out with Old English, Anglo-Saxon if you're nasty. My A-game slots into the B in your sonnet. Your G-spot is haunted. I'm the one who wants it to want me. Let's get this seance started. Oh man, that is awesome! It's really got some beautiful sounds in it. Uh, the skeeves up the girls in H and M. That is such a gorgeous line, man. Was... I like the sound of that. I have to admit, oh, I read man. that poem in the in the the Ogilvy Transit Center or whatever it's called. Nick Nick Dembski, a great poet who lives in Racine, Wisconsin, got a self titled book out on uh, fence. Uh, recorded me on video reading that. Oh, no kidding. And, and another one in front of the McDonald's. <laughs> oh, wait, I think I saw those. That was so weird. Like, you were just, what, were you guys just, like, running around with a camera or something? Or was uh, like... He was in town, and he wanted, he, you know, he wanted to post me reading some poems on his blog, so I obliged him. But I, it was the middle of winter, and it was freezing, and, <laughs> and we were just like, let's just do it in the, at the McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. This poem also, and... It's kind of a, I almost feel obnoxious bringing it up, but you know all your kind of like retail store references, you know? 
Yeah. I was listening. Forever 21. Yeah, yeah. I just I was at the mall the other day and I saw those and I thought of this poem. Uh, I was listening to I listened to this uh, philosophy podcast, Partially Examined Life, and they uh, mm-hmm. they were t- their latest episodes on Carl Jung. And talking, I probably pronounced that wrong, didn't I? But uh, his his whole big deal about symbols, and he kind of they're talking about how he's kind of pissed off that like we kind of abandon all these religious symbols, you know, and these rituals. And he's like, "This is what modernity's missing." Like, and then I thought, man, what if we just replaced them with these like retail stores? And which made me think, I just returned from Florida, and I was like twenty six thousand feet in the air, and I looked down, and you know what was crystal clear to me was the Target store, you know, and I was like, oh, wow. and I was, it was almost like as if I was seeing a chapel or a, a great piece of architecture from the sky, you know, and I was like, all I could discern from that high up was the Target and then the staples and the parking lots look like little motherboards of computers, you know, and I thought, okay, if these are symbols that we kind of like find meaning in, you know, I get jacked up sometimes when I walk into a store and I'm going to buy something, you know, like, I'm not afraid to admit that, but I also know I'm participating in something kind of creepy, you know, just like gross. But maybe that, you know, if these are yeah. symbols, are these adequate symbols? I mean, like, they, I think they're definitely giving us some sort of meaning, but is that sustainable? I mean, is it, can we even compare it to religious symbols, you know? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not religion. It's, it, I would say that the, the more apt analogy is the sort of empty Western notion of spirituality that's so popular now. Where you, uh, I love it when people say, that, I'm, "I'm not religious. I'm spiritual." I don't even know what that means. Kind of like, it's kind of, it's, well, I think it's, a, I think it's code for, uh, I don't like to think. I'm just, I, I just like <laughs> to, I just like to experience. You know, right. there's like a kind of, there's a kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm, it's like saying, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm really vacuous and. Right. It doesn't matter to me, you know. I don't want to have to try very hard. <laughs> right. I don't want to be confronted with any sort of sacred text that calls me out right. in weird ways, or yeah. So I think you're right that uh, maybe the yeah that there's kind of a spirituality to you know. I don't know if I want to call it consumerism, but it is like this big social activity that a lot of people have in common, you know. Um, well, yeah. I mean, like brand, you know, consumer capitalism is 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 quite obviously. Uh, source of meaning, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's it 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 produces meaning, yeah. and the it, it it so happens that the meanings it produces are disguised under various aspects. Um, you know, it produces immiseration and it produces cruelty and injustice and war. Precisely. But it seems to produce, you know, youthfulness and health and, and <laughs> exactly. And, you know, <laughs> no, that is a messed up. Uh, contradiction. I didn't think about that. That is so. Well, that's the whole idea. I mean, you know, yeah. capitalism is about contradictions, and it's also it's a way of absorbing contradictions and, and using them to produce even more contradictions. I mean, you ask if it's sustainable. Capitalism clearly isn't sustainable, but no. the the it does have an amazingly tenacious ability to 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 absorb its its very oppositions into its substance. I know it's so incredible. The, yeah, I mean it's you know it works great as a as a system for 
enriching a very few people at the expense of a great many. And it absorbs protest. I mean, it's just like, it's like nothing. And it kind of even challenges the notion of the nation state because it could care less about uh, where it does its business. You know, I mean, it's just like spreads. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there was a, there was a great trend in postmodernism to sort of proclaim the premature death of the nation state and the, right. the sort of rise of the corporate state. And I think that that is, you know, I mean, all that's you have a little to do over is, the top. Look at, yeah, well, it's just, yeah, there, there is still a contradiction between the nation state and the corporate state, but it's not as if there's, there's not some kernel of truth to that. Um, yeah, it's not like politicians are wearing, like, company logos on their nice suits when they're doing a press conference, you know. And, you know, and I think Coca-Cola is, 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 you know, look at the wealth of some of these companies, and it outstrips a great number of entire countries, you know. Yeah. Um, it's pretty dumb. I think that, yeah, well, it's a, you know, we live in a in a very sort of fraught time, but what worries me is that capitalism is so adept at, at reabsorbing, uh, at, at absorbing its um, contradiction, at, at at sort of realigning, I suppose itself, in order to accommodate um, various oppositional lines. That you know, capitalism isn't going to be here forever. We think it is, but it's clearly not possible geographically, um, or as far as resources are concerned, or just as just as as a question of how many people you can possibly impoverish. Yeah, uh, and continue uh, to maintain a consumer base, but yeah. the question is how long? You know, I mean, how long? How long can it go on? Um, uh, this is, you know, we were we were talking about about Christian redemption, and there's and and there are certain lines of intersection. Um, uh, yeah, like what do you mean between Christian, say, Christian belief and Marxism? I mean, Marxist. Uh, Christianity or Christian or Christian Marxism are not contradictions. There are certain movements uh, within both impulses that um, have a lot of commonalities. And I mean, you know, Christ said, "If you would be perfect, sell that thou hast and give to the poor," which is somehow not a verse that the fundamentalists are inclined to take literally. But <laughs> no, it is amazing how the Gospels are completely. Ignored essentially by the by fundamentalists. <laughs> yeah. So, but but anyway, I mean, you, it's impossible for me to, to 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 be optimistic about it. But at the same time, you know, there's what else can you do but but continue to work in the direction of things getting better, right? I mean, yeah. without settling for a sort of uh, mealy-mouthed liberal amelioratism or something. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, back to the poem, though, and that you brought up. All oh, right, the poem. Yeah, you know, yeah, that thing, uh, that thing about sexual desire and stuff. Uh, what well, I won't get into that. <laughs> I don't even know how to get into that. But uh, what was the? It kind of made me think of high school, though. How did you do navigating the the social hell that is high school? Did you did you come out unscathed? Did you have like a serious partner or girlfriend or whatever? Dude, or did you just kind of like what? What was high school like for you? I've been. It's <laughs> a lot of people in the reviews, like Dwight Garner in the New York Times, referred to me as a young poet. <laughs> and 
And, you know, I just read that poem where I talk about being 38 at the time. I mean, yeah. you know, I guess I'm young if I were the president, but the late 30s, which is when I wrote these books, these poems, that's not, I don't think of that as young. Why? The reason for that is that I don't know why they think I'm young. I, don't, I mean, it, but, um, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe to some people that's young. I guess if you're in your 60s, it seems kind of young. But the point is that it took me a long time to sort of get myself together. Yeah. <laughs> in high school, I was like this. I was kind of like a, uh, uh, like, you remember on, on the Muppet Show, the, 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 the drummer, the guy who never talked, he just like screamed and he had orange hair. Yeah. What was his name? I don't remember. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I totally do. He was just, you know, he was just like this completely in, uh, inarticulate kind of like spitting. He was like spitting and whirling around like Tasmanian devil. Yeah. That was me like through my, my twenties, you know, like I was just, I was a mess. Um, I just didn't have my shit together. You know, I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't want to take anything seriously. I didn't want to, I didn't want to work too hard. I, you know, I mean, I managed to, more or less, uh, you know, maintain it. I mean, I, I mean, I was not like I was homeless or or or, or whatever, but yeah. but I wasn't very pleasant and I wasn't very together, you know. Yeah. And so my first book wasn't published until I was thirty nine, and and uh, yeah, you know, that's the, high school was a was a was a just a weird obnoxious. I was, I was obnoxious. Yeah. I was. I didn't know how to dress. I didn't, uh, you know, <laughs> I was a mess. It was totally a mess, it sounds like. I was, just, I was awkward. That's the word for it. Yeah. Like, like, all through my teens and 20s, I was just really, really awkward and kind of obnoxious. Well, it sounds like a genuine response to that kind of environment anyway. I mean, that environment's schizophrenically off the hook, you know I mean? How does anybody, oh, sure. any sensitive person, like, navigate it? I have no idea without, like, putting on a thousand different masks and... Maybe you didn't, and that's why things were so, like, kind of crazy, because you're just, like, we're rolling with it. Um, I want to ask you, uh, because not only are you known as a poet, of course, your reviews, and uh, I wanted to ask you about, I'm trying to get a general sense of the playing field of reviewing, because, like, where yours is kind of that classic, you know, like, I think my job is to tell you whether you should pass or not on this book. Other places have reviews that seem to be kind of mere summaries, and I think the argument they will say is like, I'm just trying to contribute to the overall general poetry culture. My kind of my kind of easy breezy kind of review is kind of just a, a positive contribution to the poetry community. I mean, how do you like? How do you look at your own reviewing? Uh, and also, like, when you look out in the playing field of just, like, general reviewing, like, what's your take on it? Well, I don't – I don't know. I mean, there's – a lot of my reviewing – Well, let me say um, this. You're not afraid to kind of just say what you think, and if that's sometimes something negative about the – you know, about the writing – you know, you don't well, like. Yeah. I mean, I it's think not it's, like I an eternalized taboo for you to be like, "Oh, I better not say that." You know. No, I feel as, if, as though you should. I mean, it's just criticism, right? It's just reviewing. You're just reviewing a book. It's not like you're like uh, uh, out there 
protesting in the streets and risking arrest or something. You're just you're just writing down your um, you're writing down you're writing about a, a, a work of art. So I don't see why people are so afraid of. You know, right. I mean, I do see why. I mean, there are there are internal reasons, but yeah. internal to the field. But um, I think that it's part of the critic's job, to be honest, and and to have style. And for me, having a style in an honest way means resorting at times to a sort of acerbic tone that I happen to think that I'm good at and that comes from having read and, and, and enjoying a lot of yeah. critics who are not afraid to employ that tone. And, and I, mean, I don't want to say, you know, you should buy this, you shouldn't buy it. Like, no, I know. I hope it's not, uh, it's not only a consumer guide, but at the same time. Well, that you're a complete that human being responding to a work of art. And sometimes those responses can just vary. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at, I mean, I don't know what my experience of reading a lot of reviews is the, like, I don't, like, I don't know. I wrestle with, like, I have this reflex where, like, I just, like, in the tradition that I understand is that, yeah, that you're supposed to embody a style and that can be kind of witty and biting and, and kind of, like, fun, you know, like in a fun engagement that can be both positive and negative and ebb and flow between those. And then I read other reviews that are just kind of, like, there doesn't seem like to be like a true engagement with the work because there's no way you could have this one dimensional response to it. Well, there, I think there are not very many good critics or reviewers at any given time. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of the review, you know, criticism has actually um, become something that anyone can do now because the internet provides a platform and I think that's just too bad, really. I think that we don't, you know, the internet. A lot of these literary sites. I'm sure that I could name a few, and you would you would be familiar with them. But I don't need to grief. Uh, yeah. Publish reviews that are just just shoddy and badly written, and and they do it over and over again, and they're clearly not copy edited, and they and there's no sense of 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 um, independent thought, you know, there are reviews these days, the ones that I look at, I know I'm being vague and generalistic, but I I don't, I don't want to get into it. (laughs) There's a a great deal of, um, of just rehearsing a party line about something. And really more people think, I don't know. I don't know how much this has to do with the internet, how much it has, it's a generational thing, but certainly people in their twenties and thirties who grew up with the internet have, let's say, put this a little delicately, perhaps been too willing to believe they can write good prose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just remarkable to me how, uh, little sense, a great deal of reviews and criticism on the internet right. gives give of um, having thought about situating what they're writing in a tradition of critical analysis right. that happens to have a great many exemplars whose books you could buy and read and learn about constructing sentences. You know, <laughs> that's what bothers me more than the than the endless positive reviewing, which is just 
you know, cowardice probably. Right, so you're kind of calling or, out their ability just to write well. Yeah, that's what pisses me off more. I mean, yeah. God, we, I, you know, part of me wants to just say, especially the name of this one website that keeps popping into my mind, but no, I'm not going to. There's no <laughs> There's no point. Don't do it, man. Don't do it. Yeah. Wait, do it. No, don't. <laughs> hey, uh, you mentioned that you got uh, a certain interview uh, coming up. Did you complete this interview? That you? Uh, no. There's a. Um, Did you want to talk about it? Which one? Uh, the SS one. That you? Oh, doing? that. No, no, yeah, that was that was a few years ago. I, it was um, a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, that was some years ago. Uh, I, I never heard this my, story, and I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it. But if you're willing to, I'd love to hear it. I told I, I tell the story real briefly in the beginning of my review of Frederick Seidel's poems, 1959-2009, which appeared in the London Review of Books in whenever the hell it was, 2009, I suppose, maybe 2010. Yeah. But I, the whole story is, I know people who know Fred Seidel. I don't. I've never met him. Um, but I know people who go out with them and, and, you know, he's from everything that I, he, I mean, he, a, first of all, he's my favorite contemporary poet. Yeah. And second of all, he's, and he's been an important influence, which is sort of obvious. Yeah. And second of all, he's, um, you know, a, an extraordinarily nice guy, but he also is a very private guy. So I was sort of, my friend, uh, Zach Barron, who at the time was working on, uh, I was an editor at the Village Voice. He's now, at GQ, um, but he had interviewed me. Uh, we became friends because he was interested in my work, and he interviewed me a couple times for the Village Voice, and he asked me if I wanted to interview Seidel wow. for the paper, and <laughs> I said, well, sure, and then it turned out to be very difficult to actually uh, like arrange? discover how, how one goes about interviewing Frederick Seidel. <laughs> that was like the because, only bone he threw you. It's like, you want to do this? Yes. Okay, go for it. <laughs> And then I was like, okay, how do you get in touch with Frederick Seidel? And so I had to write to his public, uh, I had to write to his publicist who had to write to him, who had to write to me. You know, I mean, when people want to interview me, sometimes they'll get in touch with my publicist and then she'll get in touch with me and I'll just get in touch with the dude, in, you know, um, yeah. personally or more likely they'll just approach me in the first place. Yeah. But, you know, he's a, he, he, he's a, his is a different generation and, and, yeah, I, he and I have never actually emailed. Uh, you know, I've, I've exchanged emails with lots of people, Paul Muldoon and 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 Grill Marcus and whatever, but yeah. but Seidel is not one of them. So I finally got to the point where, <laughs> where uh, because he liked my, I was told because he liked my um, review of Uga Booga, which he uh, uses on the backs of his books. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, um, where I call him a ghoul. Yeah. Uh, he agreed to, to the interview. But this is all being told to me secondhand, you know, through his publicist. But yeah. he would only agree to two questions. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. So I wrote back to Zach, and I'm like, well, I don't, you know, how, what, what can I really get out of this? And Zach is like, well, let's just do it. And maybe you can just write a story about this yeah. experience. And, you know, the two questions, you pick up really good questions. Well, first of all, I've never interviewed anybody before, so the questions I come up with were stupid. <laughs> so, and I'm still bad at it. I just interviewed Fucked Up and Ken Mode and Watane for this piece I'm working on for Harper's, uh -huh. and I'm, 
you know, they're, they're all really nice guys, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm just a bust as an interviewer. <laughs> so they're, they're, those, I finally get, you know, he's going to call me, right? So I've, I'm like waiting for him to call me. Yeah. And I've borrowed this little mini tape recorder because this is before I had, you know, a phone that would record anything and I didn't yeah. know how to set up Google Voice or whatever. Yeah. So I've got the, you know, I've tested the tape recorder. I've got it hooked into the landline and I'm waiting for Frederick Seidel to call. Oh my God. And he calls me and he's totally nice and he's got this sort of like, you know, genteel aspect about him. Yeah. But he is completely, it's like pulling teeth to get him to say anything interesting about his work, you know? <laughs> like, like I, I asked him, you know, oh I read some, I read in some quote that he had said about what so and so's work is supposed to do, and it was this really beautiful kind of like fireworky kind of thing of this guy's work. Yeah. And I was hoping to get him talking about. Cause I only have two questions, so I was hoping to get him to talk about his work. And and I was like, so what is it that you're trying to say to us in your work? Which, yeah. as anyone will tell you, is a stupid question because <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not specific enough. But Seidel just says, "Well, that's for you to say." Yes. <laughs> You're like, and then there's just this silence, and I'm like, "Okay, one down." <laughs> Number two. And so eventually, I mean, like, you know, we talked for probably 20 minutes. You know, yeah. it's only two questions, but but he he ended up talking to me, and it was. Uh, it, it wasn't anything spectacular. I wasn't going to get a good interview about it, but I was already thinking about how I could write a piece about the whole experience yeah. of being an ingenue poet, interviewing his, you know, one of his literary heroes, etc. So I get off the phone and I play back the tape, and even though I tested the thing, somehow only my end of the conversation was recorded. <laughs> Jeez, that's hilarious. So the only thing I got out of it was I got to talk to Frederick Seidel and, and, you know, he was very nice and yeah. sort of, you know, smilingly indulgent of well, my, you, my idiocy. You got that brief contact though, but it'll probably never happen again. You know that? Well, I know people who, who hang out with them and, uh, sometimes and maybe you, know, you go can out to drink yeah. them or whatever, uh, but I don't really want to, you know, it's like, it's like, I've never tried to get in touch with John Ashbery for instance. Yeah. Uh, there, there are a lot of poets that I know and I'm either friendly with or have professional relations with. Yeah. Like I have a professional relationship with Paul Muldoon. Like we're not, I've never met him and we're not buddies. Sure. But we have a professional relationship and, um, but I don't, but there are some poets I just don't want to get to know. You know? Yeah. It's, uh, and, and Seidel and Muldoon, I mean, Seidel and Ashbury are two of them because they were such huge looming presences for me. I know. What would hanging out I, I wouldn't, be like? You know, right. I wouldn't want to have that relationship because I can already tell, knowing myself, that there would be this element of sycophancy on my part, <laughs> uh, sycophancy, whatever you say it, yeah. and and there would be like the, the worst impulse I have is that sort of earnest desire to impress people, you know, yeah. and so I mean I know people who know both those guys, and actually they're quite, you know, they're both getting up there in years. Ashbury's 85. Is he 85 now? Good Lord. He might be older than that. Yeah. 27, yeah, so he's 83. Okay. Wait, is that right? No, he's 86. Good Lord. <laughs> John yeah, Ashbury's 86 years old. Wow. There's a whole generation so, that's getting up there, you know? Yeah. Well, he and... I mean, Seidel's only still in his 70s, but um, both of them now in their recent work are writing a lot about sort of like 
being at that stage where yeah. you could die any day. And it's just, uh, Seidel says, a man my age can't go on living for long. <laughs> I know, that is terrifying. It's just scary to see that as, as, as an artistic, you know, uh, moment. Yeah. Because you know? it used to be, you know, Philip Roth gave up writing, right, supposedly. Right. And I read this interview with him where he was like, I mean, do you know anyone who's written good novels in their 80s? <laughs> and it's strange to think about writers as people live longer and longer. I mean, I hope I'll live to be 80 or whatever. Yeah. But uh, it's a, it's it's kind of uncharted territory artistically in some ways. Yeah, it's got literarily. I feel yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've seen it argued. Yeah, that people like I don't know like the quality of their work drops off, but I have no, I'm, I'm in no position to make that judgment. I want to ask you real quick. You have talked about this manuscript of poems that you are, uh, you've completed or near completed. Um, it is nearing completion. I'm supposed to get it into my editor uh, in January. I'm still writing some stuff for it. It's, yeah. it's, it's going to be slightly shorter than Alien vs. Predator. I can already tell, but yeah. um, it is, it is getting, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, yeah. I'm working on it. Yeah. Are you set on that title? The second sex. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty awesome, dude. That is well, pretty we'll awesome. <laughs> the second. Yeah, we'll see what it actually how you how you work that into your. Well, I mean that's for other interviews. Like, why did you pick that title of your book? But I did want to ask you. Uh, I'm not uh, answering that question. No, I would never even ask. Uh, what like so. You, you know, everyone's like, what do you think of all the success with this uh, Alien vs. Predator? You know, like, do you have that classic, like, pressure to come up with something? You know, like, what's it been like putting the, together the second manuscript? Have you just shut out the whole A versus P phenomenon and just been like, I'm not going, like, that's just not even in my head when I'm writing this new one? Or do you, is it a mixture of that and kind of this public expectation of, you know, stylistically, subject matter-wise, uh, well, I don't know. Do you want to say anything about that? Well, I decided when I was stuck trying to... Some of the work is quite a departure from AVP, and some of it is, you know, as a to be a little self-deprecating and cheeky, I, I put the phrase AVP 2.0 in one of my recent poems <laughs> because I think it's false and sort of... Um, uh, manufactured to sort of like consciously try to break out of your style into something new. Yeah. Um, cause I, I don't think you can force that. I think it's something that you should, you should strive for, but you can't force it. So I made a conscious decision not to worry about whether these poems are continuous in some way with those in Alien versus Predator. That sounds like a um, smart decision. I do hope to maybe take a little more time with the third one, because these just came pouring out, which surprised me. I hadn't planned to have a second book ready so fast, but um, part of it is just that I've had a lot of time on my hands. Uh, And I, you know, I'm not done making poems in that vein, although I think there are differences. Uh, I hope people will pick up on them. Uh, The success is a different question because, you know, obviously one has that sophomore album, worry that it won't yeah. be as well received. Yeah, that's what I was thinking but, Yeah, who knows? But I mean, I mean you, can't, shit, you really. can't, you can't, right, you can't like write with these things in mind. <laughs> I mean, obviously you can't keep them out of your mind, but you can't, they can't 
be factors. And for that. a poet, it's kind of a luxurious right. problem to have. And, and it's it's a totally ridiculous problem because you're a, <laughs> you know you're a poet. You're not a fucking you know. I mean, it's not being a successful poet or a so-called famous poet. I is hear not. It's not. It's it's like being like you know really really making a the really best local ice cream in the <laughs> you know the Greensboro area. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's totally right. yes. I know it's not like uh, you know you came into the major leagues as this like high tide right. rookie and you had this amazing year. It's like yeah. man, is he going to bring it again? Hit three fifty again? You know? Yeah. So uh, it's a lot of pressure whether I'm ever going to be interviewed by Suicide Girls again. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that's hilarious. So uh, you know, it's like, what can you do? I mean, there there are there are elements of of it that. There's a certain like mild celebrity aura to some things about it, but it's so <laughs> mild. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just like being a normal person who maybe a couple thousand people happen to know who you are. No, it, it's so funny because I'm, you know, I'm friends and I have family members that have their finger like miles away from the pulse of the poetry culture, and I'll be like, right. I can't believe who I'm fucking interviewing on Saturday or so, you know what I mean? And they're like, right. And then I always qualify. I'm like, well, they're big in the poetry world. You know, like they have no, <laughs> idea. They have no idea, yeah. but, but I guess, you it's know, a little microclimate, you know, yeah. it's being internet famous, except like with, except no one knows who you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the MFA programs have done a great job, like creating a pretty vibrant, like entire audience of poets, you know, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Well, that's what's weird is that like, you know, you're known by this little group of you know, this little like subsector of the population, but it's a <laughs> really know? like active one, you know. Right, and there, it's very active, and it and it seems like you're getting a lot of attention, and it seems like lots of people know who you are, but they're just all these same people, you know. There's yeah. there, it's it. What really interests me is when I get a letter from like some some you know high school kid in South Dakota who's never heard of poetry, never been right. into it before, you know, which has happened a couple times. You know, it's, yeah. it's it's an interesting thing, but for the most part, no. One uh, being successful as a poet is such a such a minor thing in the first place that uh, it's it's not really entering into my, my consideration. So, yeah. if, like, if I if I somehow like am fade a little bit out of the consciousness, the the difference will be so uh, <laughs> <laughs> like a sort of gradient of twilight. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well hey michael robbins uh it's really been a pleasure uh talking to you on new books and poetry i hope you uh i hope you come back uh do you think your book of uh criticism is going to come out before or after the book of poems uh it'll be out after i'm finishing i'm going to try to get that manuscript in um by the end of next year yeah, uh, that's great well i'm working come... on the poetry right now that's cool i hope you come back all right thanks a lot john thanks for having me all right bye